God, as we know, definitely wants his children to pray. The devil does not want God's children to pray, and he's going to do everything within his power to keep us from praying. The devil is not afraid of your Bible reading. He could care less if you read the Bible. He doesn't care about your service to God. He doesn't care about your faithful attendance in church every Sunday. But what he does worry about, what he trembles about, is when you pray. He trembles when you pray. Because, the, because Satan knows that you can do a lot more things for God through your prayers than you can through your flesh, your strength, and your works. The devil would rather have you do anything but pray. Now, we have all kinds of enemies, invisible and visible, when it comes to prayer. But we don't have to be afraid of them if we have our eyes on Jesus. And it's the army of evil spirits that go about hindering us. Those wandering thoughts that so often interrupt or ruin our prayer. How many times have you gone into your prayer closet and you started to pray and all of a sudden this thought out of nowhere comes into your head? Where did that come from? Or, or something that, that you have to do and you have to do it now or else you'll forget. These interruptions that come into our prayer closet, these different hindrances, that's why Paul said we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We no sooner get on our knees when all of a sudden we remember, oh, I forgot to do this and I better do it now. And we get up and we go and we take care of it so that I don't forget it later. Or the phone rings or somebody's knocking at your door or again, or, you know, somebody in the house needs you. These thoughts, these interruptions come from the outside. And they are surely due to the work of evil spirits. Now, the only cure for wandering thoughts is to get our minds fixed on God. And no doubt a man's worst, our worst enemy to our prayer life is us. It's us. And most of our hindrances are out of our own doing. Prayer is for the child of God. And the one who is living like a child of God should pray. So here's the question this morning. Are my prayers, are your prayers being hindered in some way that we might not be aware of? Did we, did we know, do we know that we ourselves can hinder our prayer life? One way is, am I harboring any enemies to prayer in my heart? And we're going to look at several of those enemies to prayer this morning. And there's more than what we're going to look at, but I think these are some of the big ones. Uh, they're all big, but some of the more obvious ones and the ones that more regularly hinder our prayer life. God can't give us his best spiritual blessings unless we fulfill his conditions of trust, obedience, and service. There are conditions to God answering our prayer. A lot of Christians trust God. A lot of Christians obey God. But do they serve God? How about serving God? You see, prayer is given to us Christians who serve Him 
to help get his work done. It's important we understand that. Prayer was not given to to us to get stuff. To get things that we want. Things that we'd like to have. That wasn't the reason for prayer. Prayer was given to us so that we could accomplish the work of God. So are you serving God? A lot of Christians think that prayer is for getting things that they want for their own pleasure. To make life easier. To make it better. James tells us, you have, you, you, I was wondering why things were so blurry. <laughs> what's, what's the difference this morning? <laughs> okay. James says, you ask and you do not receive because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. James 4, 3, prayer is a resource that God has given us to accomplish his will. And how many times do we truthfully ask God for the best spiritual gifts without even thinking? Am I meeting the necessary conditions? How many times do we ask God for for God's blessings and we're not spiritually fit to receive them? Remember when the worshiper would go to the altar with their sacrifice... It would be inspected to make sure that the sacrifice was fit for the altar. So when we come to the altar of of God with our prayers, is our prayer fit for the altar? Is it worthy of God? Is it acceptable to God? Are we honest with God? Are we honest enough when we go into the presence of God to ask God, search me, O God, and know my heart and see if there's any wicked way in me? Lord, is there anything in my heart, in my life that's hindering your blessing for me and through me? We talk about the problem of prayer. That's an oxymoron. There's no problem with prayer. (laughs) There's no problem with prayer. Everything about prayer is right. And if your heart is totally abiding in Christ, it will always be right. We are the problem that needs to be talked about or examined. What we need to do is take a good look at our own heart. And realize that no sin, because we like to categorize sin as, as little, big, black, white, you know. But we need to understand that that no sin is too small to hinder prayer. And possibly turn that prayer itself into sin if we're not willing to give up that sin. David cried in Psalm 66, 18, If I regard iniquity in my heart, O Lord will not hear. The Lord will not hear. Isaiah said in Isaiah 59, 2, Your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. I'm sure we would all agree that it's sin in us and not that Jesus doesn't want to hear us that hinders our prayers. Now, we might call it a little sin. But understand, that little sin is big enough to ruin or spoil your prayer life. So what we're going to do this morning is a look at some of those so-called little sins that hinder our prayers. And we're going to begin, number one, with doubt. Doubt hinders prayer. 
And doubt is probably our biggest hindrance to prayer. Jesus said in John 69 that the Holy Spirit would convict the world of sin because they, the world, the unbelievers, do not believe in me. But we're not of this world. We're not of this world. Yet, isn't there a lot of everyday unbelief in a lot of Christians? A lot of us? Warren Wiersbe called these people practical atheists. He said they may claim to believe that there is a God, but they live as though he didn't exist. James wrote to Christians in James 1, 6 through 8. But let him ask in faith. Notice, let him ask in faith without doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. These people that James is writing, was writing about shouldn't expect to receive anything from the Lord because their loyalty is divided between God and the world. They're a, they're a double-minded man. Their, their heart is divided. They're unstable in everything that they do. In other words, it must be a prayer that's backed by a real trust in God's character and in his purpose and in his promises. And some Christians simply doubt that God will give them what they need and justify, they will justify their doubts in all kinds of ways. Again, I love this example, uh, this, this excerpt from George Mueller, again, uh, who was a passenger on a ship. And he went to the captain and he said, Captain, I need to tell you, I have to be in Quebec on Saturday afternoon. The captain replied to Mr. Mueller, that's impossible. Very well, Mueller said, if your ship cannot take me, God will find some other way because I have never missed an engagement in 57 years. So he tells the captain, let's go down to the chart room to pray. Captain said, I looked at this man of God and I thought to myself, what lunatic asylum did he escape from? He said, I had never encountered someone like this Mr. Mueller before. He said, Mr. Mueller, do you realize how dense the fog is? I love his answer. No. My eye is not on the dense fog. My eye is on the living God who controls every circumstance of my life. You see, we spend so much time looking at the dense fog. And that dense fog can be any circumstance in your life that you feel is overwhelming. We can't see God because we're looking at the dense fog. Mr. Mueller then knelt down and he prayed one of the most simple prayers I've ever heard, the captain said. When he had finished, the captain said, I started to pray. But Mr. Mueller put his hand on my shoulder and told me, don't pray. He said, first of all, you didn't believe, you don't believe God will answer. And second, I believe he has. So there's no need whatsoever for you to pray about it. He said to the doubting man, don't bother praying. You know, God's not going to receive your prayer. You doubt, you don't believe it. The captain said, as I looked at him, Mueller said, Captain, I have known my Lord for 57 years and there has never been a single day that I have failed to get an audience with the king. Get up, captain, and open the door and you will see that the fog is gone. Captain, I got up and indeed the fog was gone. And on Saturday afternoon, George Mueller was in Quebec at his meeting. You see, a prayer that doesn't take God at his word, that doubts his ability or his trustworthiness is, is disrespectful. It's worthless and an insult in the face of God who does not lie, who does not break his promises. Hebrews eleven six tells us without faith, it is impossible to please him. We need to remember Jesus' promise in Matthew 21, verses 21 and 22. Jesus said, if you have faith and do not doubt, notice, 
If you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what is done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Notice, notice the conditions. Do not doubt. If you believe, it will be done. James said that the believer who doubts is like the waves of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. In other words, his prayer isn't really a prayer at all because he foolishly and disrespectfully does not believe God will honor it. James simply says he's a double-minded man. He has a divided heart. He's unstable in all of his ways. Even though he says he's a believer, his actions say he's an unbeliever. When he goes through a severe trial, he turns to man rather than trusting in the Lord for answers and for help. Or he becomes bitter and resentful, and he doesn't ask the Lord for anything at all. He doesn't give up on God, but you know what? He acts as if God doesn't exist, or God doesn't care, or that God can't deliver him from his trouble. And this is the sad story with a lot of Christians. They know a little bit about God's word. They know a little bit about his love. They know a little about his grace and a little bit about his providence. But they refuse to take advantage of those heavenly resources. No matter how the double-minded person sees himself, they are trying to serve two gods. And Jesus said, that's impossible. Some have not because they ask not, but some have not because they don't believe. Have you ever noticed that we don't spend much time in adoration and thanksgiving before we start asking? We rush into our prayer right away saying, Lord, I need, I need, and give me and help me. And, but we don't go into that time of prayer and begin to worship him and to praise him and to thank him before we start asking. If we would just get a glimpse of his glory and his majesty and the wonders of his love and his grace and unbelief, doubt for sure will disappear. Remember Nehemiah's prayer when we were in the first chapter of Nehemiah 1, verse 4 and 5? He said, I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God. Notice how he prays and he worshiped him. He said, you who keep your covenant and mercy. Jesus in his model prayer said in Matthew 6, 9, Our Father in heaven, hallowed or holy be your name. Notice he started the prayer in, in worship. Hallowed be your name. Holy is your name, God. And this is why Abraham didn't stagger. He didn't waver under the promise that he would have a son. Because you see, he gave God the glory that he deserved. And as a result, as Romans says, he was fully convinced that what he had promised, he was able to perform. Knowing what we know about the amazing, loving, faithfulness of God, should we ever doubt him? Never. Never. The second thing, the second sin that will keep us, or that will hinder our prayers is selfishness. Selfishness. The root of all sin is selfishness. We have a tendency to be selfish even in our own good works because we're so hesitant to give up anything that we want. But here's the thing. If your hands are, are, are full of this world's goods, then how can you receive anything that the Lord has for you? And maybe this is why Jesus, in the prayer that he first taught, the model prayer, he coupled the word us with everything else. Our is the first word 
in that model prayer. Our Father. And then he says, Our Father, give us. Our Father, forgive us. Our Father, deliver us. Pride is what keeps us from praying. Because pride, because prayer is a very humbling thing to do. Pride says, hey, I got this. Pride says, I can do this myself. I don't need your help. I don't need anybody's help. I don't need, I don't need you to pray for me. Or I don't want anybody to know that, that I'm hurting or that I'm in need. You see, you have to humble yourself to ask others to pray with you and for you. And if we don't, we miss out on the blessing of sharing our burdens with others. And we're, we're told in Scripture to share our burdens with one another. We miss out on having the blessed fellowship of group prayer, of united prayer. Yes, we saw that Jesus said we are to have our alone prayer. But you know, we are to have our united prayer together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Sharing the burdens that we have and the joys with one another. Jesus said, when you pray, say, our Father. Notice, our more than one, our Father. And again, Jesus said in, in, in Matthew eight nineteen through 20, Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of them. You see, thank God it doesn't take a thousand people for Jesus to come. Says, oh, no, you know, there's only two or three of you. Get a bigger crowd and I'll come and join you. You know, people, a lot of people in the numbers, Jesus, no. One, two, or three, or I'll, I'll be there. Remember when Peter was in prison and he was waiting his execution? The church knew that they didn't have the power or the influence to save Peter's life. They knew that they didn't have the power or the influence to get him out of jail. There was no earthly help for Peter. But what would, when, we, when we go further on and we read in that chapter when Peter was in jail, we read that the church prayed fervently. The church was praying together. The church was united together, praying for Peter. And then God sent his angel to free Peter. Don't let hateful pride with its best buddy jealousy ruin your prayer life. So you see, it shouldn't be hard to see why God hates pride so much because it robs people of the power of prayer, among many other things. We can be foolish sometimes because when we're insistent, when we want God, God, I want this. God doesn't give us what we ask at the expense of holiness. God is concerned more about your holiness than anything else. We see what happened when the people were persistent in that in Israel and he kept asking for meat. We want meat. We want meat. Well, in Psalm 106, 15, it says he gave them their meat, but he sent leanness to their soul. We need to pray that God will keep us from that, to save us from self. Another thing that self does is criticize other people. Now think about this for a minute, because this can hinder our prayer life. The more a man or a woman becomes like Jesus Christ, the less he or she judges other people. It's a perfect test. Those who are always criticizing others, they have drifted away from Christ. They're not Christ-like. They may still be a child of God, but they've lost the spirit of Christ's love. They've lost the spirit of love. If you have a criticizing nature, use it to look at yourself and never anybody else. I like what F.B. Meyer said. 
He said, listen attentively to the word of truth, written or spoken. Be quick to notice the smallest symptoms of inconsistency between your life and the perfect beauty of Jesus. And set yourself immediately to correct it. Be merciful to the failings of everyone else, but be merciless to your own. And let no fault remain uncorrected and no call to duty unanswered. We don't make ourselves better by making somebody else look worse than us. But we increase our own spiritual joy and our own living witness for Christ when we refuse, when we say, I will not pass on any belittling information about anybody. We can put that into the category of gossip. Or when we stop judging other people's lives or the things that we do. Now, Jude tells us we're to contend earnestly for the faith which was once and for all delivered to the saints. And sometimes we do have to speak out. But as Paul said, let us always speak the truth in love. Even in our private prayer, even when we go into our prayer closet, it's just you and God. Finding fault with others has has to totally be avoided. Because you see, a criticizing spirit destroys the holiness of life easier than anything else. Because you see, going into your prayer closet and then criticizing somebody in the presence of God, it's a respectable sin. Well, I'm doing it in prayer. Oh, Lord, this person, they just, you know, they're just so mean. And this person is just so critical of me. And they're just so, and you can, you can never, you can put in your own words. It's very respectable because I'm I'm taking it to God. And it makes us, though, easy victims. It shouldn't have to be said, but when a believer is filled with the Holy Spirit, who is love, they will never tell other people about the unchristian behavior that they might have experienced from another brother or sister. Oh, they were rude to me, or they, they disrespected me, or they're so conceited. Or they, ju- they don't talk, they just ignore me. These are the kind of remarks that are definitely unkind, they're unnecessary, and many times they're not always true. And just many times we're just hypersensitive. Think about it. Think about how many times Jesus suffered contradictions, criticisms, accusations, lies, and slander from sinners. Do we ever read about him complaining or telling, hey guys, you know, this, this, this guy over here, he was just, he was mean to me. Oh, and he called me names. He called me a liar. He said I really wasn't the Messiah. <laughs> we don't read him doing that. He never told others about the slander and the complaint. Why should, so why should we? You see, self has to be taken off of the throne if Jesus is going to have a total reign in our life. We can't have any idols in our heart. And you know, when that goes on, we're the idol. We're the idol. When our desire is to totally glorify God, then God can answer our prayers. The psalmist said in Psalms 37, 4, Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. If we truly delight in the Lord, then the the main desire of our heart will be to know him better so that we can delight in him even more, and the Lord then will satisfy that desire. Now, this particular scripture is one of the most misunderstood and misinterpreted scriptures because 
you hear it all the time. Oh, you know, I really want this and I really want that. And well, you know, God says he'll give you the desire of your heart. All you got to do is pray for it. Wrong. Is it according to his will? Is it according to his will? Is it going to further his purpose, his cause, his kingdom? See, my heart has to beat with God's heart in order for me to get the things that I desire. Because if my heart is beating with God's heart, I'm going to want what he desires. I'm going to want what God wants. I'm going to love what God loves. I'm going to hate what God hates. This is not a promise for people who want things, but for those who want more of God in their lives. And it's just as true today as in the early days of Christianity that men ask and do not receive, James says, because you ask amiss and that you spend it on your own pleasure. It's for you. It's all about you. The third hindrance to prayer is disobedience. Disobedience. Constant obedience is a condition of answered prayer. Listen to 1 John 3.22. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we notice because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Notice the condition. We obey and we do. You see, your power in prayer depends upon your life in Christ. There's no way of keeping in close touch with God without obedience. You see, disobedience breaks our, 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 our closeness with God. God doesn't bless disobedience. He lets go. The fourth thing that we see, the hindrance to prayer, is persistence in prayer. We have to pre- be persistent in prayer. We have to be, you know, keep, keep praying. Keep asking. There has to be a waiting on God and waiting for God. Like the farmer waits long and patiently for the harvest. The, the farmer doesn't go out and plant his seeds, you know, on that, that, that day and then wake up the next morning looking for a harvest. He waits and he waits. He has to, he has to wait for various things. The weather, the rain, you know, all of the things that, that help to make the crop go. He knows that it's going to come, but he has to wait for it. An example is a man was shoveling snow from his driveway one day when two boys carrying snow shovels approached him. Shovel your snow, mister? One of them asked. Only two dollars. The puzzle man replied, can't you see that I'm doing it myself? Sure, said the enterprising lad. That's why we asked. We get most of our business from people who are halfway through and they quit and they feel like quitting. It's like prayer. We pray. We get halfway through, a quarter way, three quarters, and we just quit. We don't persevere. Charles Spurgeon reminded his London congregation, by perseverance, the snail reached the ark. (laughs) By perseverance, the snail reached the ark. A fifth hindrance to our prayer is a loveless heart. A loveless heart. This is probably one of the biggest hindrances to prayer. A loving spirit is a condition of believing prayer. You see, how can we have a bad relationship with our fellow man and think we have a good relationship with God? What a contradiction. The spirit of prayer is basically the spirit of love. Intercession is simply love at prayer. What a contradiction to hate those that God loves or be angry at those that God loves and died for. If we are, do we really have the spirit of Christ? If anybody says, I'm living in the light, but hates their Christian brother or sister, that person is still living in darkness, John said. Anyone who hates a Christian brother or sister is living and walking in darkness. And this person is lost 
because they've been blinded by the darkness, 1 John 2, 9 through 11. We have to really, honestly examine these simple truths in our faith. If prayer is to be anything more than just a ritual, because if, if we don't pay attention to these hindrances and these things that will block our prayer, we're just going through a, a ritual. Jesus said in Matthew 5, and 45, he said, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. And then in 46 through 48, he said this, if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Notice, God expects us to to do more. He expects us to be different than than other people, especially the world. He says, uh, again, do do not even the tax collectors do so? Hey, they they love their, their, their people, you know, but we're to love more. Therefore, you shall perfect, be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. We take for granted that many professing Christians have never faced this question. When you hear how many Christian workers, and even well-known ones as well, speak disgracefully of other people, you have to wonder, you have to think, have they ever heard the command of Jesus? The way we live our life every single day in this world is the best indicator of our power in prayer. God looks at our prayers, deals with our prayers. He, he doesn't look at them and base them on my, my, my attitude or my spirit that I show while I'm praying, whether in public or private. He looks at my everyday life in this world. He looks at how I live every day as a Christian. Bad-tempered people, they can't pray warm, loving prayers. If we don't obey Jesus' command and love one another, our prayers are pretty much worthless. If we're holding an unforgiving spirit, a grudge of any kind, it's almost a waste of time to pray. Because, you see, we're commanded to forgive. Our Father's forgiveness of our sins is based on us forgiving others. We need to always show the Spirit of Christ and not be deprived of our own much-needed forgiveness. I wonder how many people have prayed this morning and will pray even later on this day who don't have the slightest intention of forgiving their enemies. Or those who have offended them. And yet they'll pray. A lot of Christians have never given prayer a fair chance. It's not through conscious sincerity, but from lack of thought that they don't. We'd rather, we'd rather learn doctrine than do doctrine. We'd rather learn the Bible and know all about the Bible. That's the easy part. What about the doing part? Why learn the doctrine if I'm not going to do it? And you see, Jesus put the premium on doing. James said, a doer of the work is the one who will be blessed in what he does. The blessing doesn't come in the knowing and the hearing. It comes in the doing. Now, most men want to do what's right. But they don't want to be inconvenienced being right most men want to do what's right but they don't think about the big things more than the little failures in the life of love 
Jesus went so far as to say, if we remember that our brother has anything against us, he won't accept our gifts. If a brother has anything against us, Jesus said he will not accept our gifts. And if Jesus won't accept our gifts, what makes us think, think he'll accept our prayers? We're so willing to see that our own lives, or I should say we're so unwilling to see that our own lives is what hinders our prayers. We want to win Jesus, people to Jesus, don't we? Jesus shows one way. He shows one way. Don't tell everybody his wrongdoings. Speak to him alone, Matthew eighteen fifteen says. And you have gained a brother. Usually we have caused pain to our brother. And even in our home life, it may hinder our prayer life. Because our kids see one thing at home and they see another thing at church. We need to ask God to search our hearts and to show us if there's any root of bitterness towards anyone. Even the slightest little bit. We all want to do what pleases God, don't we? It would be a huge advantage to our spiritual life if we would decide not to try to pray until we have done everything in our power to make peace and harmony between ourselves and anybody that we've quarreled with. Because until we do, until we make that peace with those that we're bitter at or or quarreled with, our prayers will go nowhere. Our prayers will be just wasted breath. Unkind feelings or thoughts towards other people hinder God from helping us the way he wants to. A loving life is an important requirement of believing prayer. And God challenges us to become fit people in order to receive his abundant blessings. Are we fit for the altar? Can we approach the altar of God acceptably? Many people, many of us have to decide whether we choose a bitter, unforgiving spirit or the tender mercies and loving kindness of our Lord Jesus. You know, it's amazing when you know this and people sit in church and they know the scriptures and they'll hear this and they'll still be unforgiving and they'll still be resentful. And it's amazing that anybody can have a hard time choosing to forgive or keeping a bitter spirit because of the consequences of it. Because you see, bitterness harms the person who's bitter more than the one that they're bitter at. It's like bitterness, bitterness is like drinking poison, poison hoping it will kill the other person. Jesus said in Mark eleven twenty five, and whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your Father in heaven may also forgive you. So you see, we have to, we have to either forgive or stop trying to pray. It doesn't do us any good, any, any good to spend time praying while at the same time I'm not loving or forgiving somebody. Because by not loving and not forgiving, you stop the effectiveness of prayer. Prayer. And you know what? The devil laughs at you. Because you go into prayer with a grudge, with bitterness, with unforgiveness. 
And he laughs because he knows what a waste of time. He laughs because you don't see the truth. God's word tells us clearly that eloquence, knowledge, faith, generosity, even martyrdom, it doesn't mean a thing, Paul said, if you don't have love. The next thing that hinders prayer is refusal to do our part. Refusal to do our part. This may hinder God from answering our prayers. Because love calls for compassion and service when we see sin and suffering wherever we see it. We can't be sincere in praying for the ungodly to be saved unless we're willing to do something about it. Let me say that again. We can't be, we, we can't be sincere in praying for the ungodly to be saved unless we're willing to do something about it. And that is not just pray. We have to say something. We have to witness to them. Write them a letter. Or try something to bring them under the influence of the gospel. Before one of Moody's great missions, he was praying at a meeting, asking for God's blessing. Several wealthy men were in this prayer meeting with Moody. And he said, several wealthy men were there. One of them started to pray, oh God, send us enough funds to pay the expenses. Moody at once stopped him in his prayer. He said, we don't need to trouble God about that. He said quietly, we are able to answer that prayer. Here were wealthy men praying, oh God, you know, help us with the expenses. God doesn't make us rich to just, he makes us rich so that we can help other people. He gives us the abundance so that we can help others. So again, we many times are able to answer that prayer in ourselves because God has given us the ability to help. Many times we want people to say, but you know, we, we need to pray for them. But you know, we also need to introduce them to the gospel. We need to do our part. The next thing is neglect of praise will hinder our prayer life. Praise is as important as the prayer itself. Psalm 100 verse 4 says, We must enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise and give thanks to him and bless his name. We're exhorted many times throughout the scriptures to rejoice in the Lord. God doesn't want miserable children. And besides, none of his children have any reason to be miserable. Notice the order of Paul's exhortation in 1 Thessalonians verse 5, 16 through 18. He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks because this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And notice he says, give thanks in everything. Everything, everything. This is God's will for us. We have to understand that it is not an option. Rejoice, pray, give thanks. This is the order according to God's will for you and me. Nothing pleases God more than our praises and nothing blesses the man or woman who prays as they praise, as the praises they offer. So do we praise God enough to get our prayers answered? If we really trust him, we'll always praise him. All hindrance to prayer result from being unaware of the teaching of God's wonderful word on the holiness that he has planned for all of us, his children or from an unwillingness to totally devote ourselves to the Lord. And there's no excuse for that. 
Hebrews 12, 14 says, pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Our salvation hinges upon holiness. Without it, we're not going to see the Lord. When we can honestly say to our Father, all that I am and have is yours, then he can say to us, all that mine is yours. All that's mine is yours. The last thing we're going to look at that hinders our prayers is we don't pray in Jesus' name. Jesus said in John 14, 13 and 14, and whatever you ask in my name, that I will do if. That little word if is huge throughout the scripture. It's the conditional word. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Because in the name of Jesus, you have permission not only to stand in the presence of God, but also to pray for everything that you need. Nothing means so much to our daily prayer life as to pray in the name of Jesus. If we don't, our prayer life will either die because we're going to get discouraged because we don't get an answer to prayer or, we, or, or we'll get into despair or, just, or it becomes just a duty that we, we feel that we have to do. So we can come before God and say to him, Lord, I don't have a right to pray because I, I truly don't have a prayerful heart. Much less do I have the right to receive what I ask for. Everything you see in my heart, Lord, is is of such a nature that, that it must be close to your heart, to me, and all my prayers. That it that it must close your heart to me and all my prayers. But Lord, don't hear me for my sake. Don't hear me for the sake of my prayer. Don't hear me because I'm in distress. Don't hear me because it's a result of my own sinfulness, but hear me, Lord, for Jesus' sake. In closing, if we break God's laws, if we pray contrary to the very idea and principle of what prayer is, our prayer life will be burdensome and it will be fruitless. But if we can learn and follow the conditions that govern prayer, laws that God himself gave us when he gave us prayer, then our prayer life will be healthy, it will be normal, and it will bear a lot of fruit, and it will be constant, a a constant reason, incentive to pray more. Prayer is such a great chore to a lot of people because we don't pray right. And we blame it on many of the things rather than maybe I'm the biggest hindrance. That's another reason why the results don't equal all the effort we put into it. Man, I pray a lot, but I don't get it answered. I pray and I pray and nothing happens. I don't get much out of it. This is no doubt the reason for the laziness that affects so many of those who pray. Maybe you can't leave your children a legacy legacy in the form of money or material things when you pass. But that's okay. And, and don't try to, you know, go through life breaking your back physically and spiritually, you know, trying to accumulate a lot of stuff that you can leave to them when you're gone. But see to it that you pray for them day and night. Because then you'll leave them a legacy of answered prayers that will be with them all the days of their life. And then you can just calmly and with a good conscience leave them behind when you go, even though you may not leave them a bunch of stuff. In the book, Kneeling Prayer, the author said, Prayer is our highest privilege, our greatest responsibility, and the greatest power God has put into our hands. Prayer, real prayer, is the noblest, the sublimest, the most stupendous act that any creature of God can perform. If it becomes hard for you to pray, then pray this little prayer. Lord, teach me to pray. 
Because you see, there's nothing that the Holy Spirit of prayer would rather do than teach you to pray. So as we've gone through this study in prayer, I pray that we would make it our goal this new year and the years to come to enter into the joy of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the time we've spent, Father, with this wonderful resource of prayer that you've given us, God. Lord, we've learned a lot about prayer. We can learn and learn and learn, God. But there comes a time when we have to do it. Lord, let it be today. Father, may we grow in the knowledge and grace of Christ through prayer, God. As the psalmist said, Lord, when we open the scriptures, Lord, show me wondrous things from your word, God. May we hunger and thirst for the things of God. He has so much to give us. But it comes through prayer. Holy prayer. Prayer that's fit for the altar. And the only one God is going to listen to is that one who is fit for the altar. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never received Christ as your Lord and Savior. Until you have received Christ, you're not fit for the altar. You can't approach God in your sinfulness. You must put on the righteousness of Christ. The worship team is going to lead us in a song of worship right now. And if God has spoken to your heart this morning, and you recognize, I need Christ. I need the forgiveness of sins. I want to become his child. That's the only prayer that Christ wants to hear from you right now, the sinner's prayer. And when that takes place, then all of heaven is opened up to you. So as the worship team leads us in this time of prayer, if you want to receive Christ, you get up out of your seat, you make your way towards the steps up front, I'll meet you there, and at the end of the song, we'll say a simple prayer of faith together.